Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading this week is from Ephesians 4 verses 7 through 16. Ephesians 4 has been beginning to describe how Christians should walk in light of um, in light of the wonderful work of Christ. And specifically, it begins by talking about how we walk worthy by striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because indeed, we are united since there is one body and one Spirit one hope of calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But then in that unity, there then is given a little bit of explanation of diversity. The exalted Christ, the victorious Christ, the one who is crucified and risen and is coming again, has ascended from the lower parts, that is the earth, into heaven, where he is then given gifts. And so there's a diversity of gifts. Each of us is given something. But he specifically refers then in verse 11 to gifts that are teachers. And talks about why the gift of teachers are given to the church. And it's ultimately to maintain and preserve and strive for attaining maturity, uh, unity, and also maturity. As Christ has been victorious and now is able to fill all things, so we are supposed to be growing up to the measure of the fullness of Christ. Not tossed to and fro by the waves, but being able to each of us speak the truth in love with each part of the body doing its proper self so that the body works itself out in love. Teachers are given to the church So that the church builds itself up. So that the church speaks the truth in love. Realistically speaking, so that the church members go about the work of the ministry in order to disciple one another. The beautiful passage in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16 says this. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, 
unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. You can turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. We will turn to Matthew 19, Lord willing, most likely next week. But as we did before Resurrection Sunday, have the privilege of looking at Matthew chapter 18 and looking deeply into what Jesus tells about his church and the community of disciples. It's good to see that the others oriented nature that is present within Matthew 18 isn't all there is to say about what the church is supposed to do and function. So we continue on to see what else is said about the church beyond what we've seen in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and move to where Jesus commissions the 11 and ultimately commissions us, the church, as well. As Matthew ends his gospel in this way, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Father, we do indeed say amen to those words. Sit back rejoice in the fact that Jesus doesn't just tell us something to do, but promises to continue to be with us as we go about doing it. That you are still with us and will never leave us or forsake us, but will continue to encourage us and comfort us and guide us as we go about in service and obedience and worship of you. Lord, we ask then that you would be with us as you always are, as we are here today, preaching and teaching and learning. May your spirit give us clarity as to the meaning of this text, and may your spirit also cause us to be ready and willing to submit to it and to submit to you, to grow closer in conformity to your word and your will. And so, Lord, we, we ask you these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We put a lot of stock in human culture into endings. 
into how different things end, like the ending of a book or the ending of one's life accompanied by a funeral to honor it. We can even have little smaller things that we commemorate in terms of life cycles to enjoy the endings of. You could go to a graduation ceremony and enjoy the fact that someone ended, ended their schooling and go on into the world. And here we have an ending. Matthew has shown us Jesus's life. He's shown us Jesus's death. He's shown us Jesus' resurrection. And now we come to this point. He's prepared to end the gospel by having Jesus speak again. Throughout Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 5 through 7, in Matthew 10, Matthew 13, Matthew 18, and Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus has given five long speeches. And so, too, it ends again with him speaking, him talking to his 11 disciples and telling them what they are to go and do. And what he tells them, I think, also relates to then us and guides us to understand that the mission of the church is to make disciples of all people groups. The church's mission is to make disciples of all peoples. So Jesus calls the eleven to a mountain in Galilee. He's previously appointed to them and said that he would show up there. They come and they worship, but some hesitate and doubt. But then he speaks, starting in the beginning, the middle of verse 18. And at that point in time, he gives the ground or the basis for the mission he is about to say. And that says this. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus doesn't begin his final talking within Matthew's gospel by giving any sort of command. He doesn't start with the commission as such. He states something that's just true, a reality that then grounds what's going on with the command that he is about to give. He says that all power, all authority is given him in heaven and on earth. The goal of what's happening is not for him to go and say to his disciples, you need to go out and conquer the world. No, he already has all authority in heaven and earth. There's a sense in which he always had this authority in heaven and on earth, but there is another sense in which he specifically says that he is to have this authority because he is not just descended into the lower parts. He has ascended up on high and now sits at the Father's right hand because he has destroyed sin, death, and the devil by dying. So he ascends and reigns. All authority being given unto him in heaven and upon earth. See, we know if we pay attention to our own lives that we sin. 
that we strive in some sense to live for ourselves. But if we actually find ourselves trapped in sin, we're not living for ourselves. We're not living based off of our own things, but are in fact enslaved to sin, to death, and the devil. We're enslaved to the very things that are dishonoring to God that we do. But Christ has conquered those enemies of sin, death, and the devil. Those enemies that we ourselves invited in by acting in dishonor to the Lord. He's taken care of them. He has put them to death. He's died to pay the ransom. He's died to be the substitute that we need because we have these sins and deserve to be punished. And so he stripped sin, death, and the devil of its power and has all authority given to him so that he then can give eternal life and forgiveness of sins to whomever he wishes. And what we must remember as we come here today and what we must understand and just be very encouraged by is that the way to have salvation and the way to have our sins forgiven and the way to be free from the sin, death, and the devil that terrorizes us and enslaves us is all secured and paid for through Jesus Christ dying and conquering and having all authority upon heaven, upon earth and in heaven. If you don't have this reality as your reality today, then come to Jesus. Come to him who was crucified. Put your faith in him. Turn from your wickedness and believe in him. Trust him. Ask him to save you. Talk to us before you leave here to be reminded more of the gospel, what it means. And come to have eternal life. What's so significant about this fact that authority is given to Jesus such that he can forgive sins? Is that he's not telling the disciples, go out and do this great thing of conquering. But he's sending them out in the name of him, Jesus, who has already conquered. Who already has all authority that can then ground what they are called out and told to do as the representatives of the one true king. And he does also then say that this authority that's been given him by his father is an authority that is in heaven and upon earth. In the passage right before what Lewis read this morning for opening of worship, there's a comment in Matthew 6.10 about God having authority and about praying that his will be done in heaven and upon earth. Matthew eleven twenty five will also describe Yahweh as the God of heaven and earth. And the only other times in which something that is akin to an authority in heaven and upon earth is mentioned is in relationship to the church and the keys of the kingdom. When what is bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven and what is loosed in earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And so this fact that we have authority in heaven and upon earth is indicative, one, that Jesus has an authority that only God can have. And also grounds the authority he's previously been delegating to the disciples in the church to bind and loose in earth to match what is bound and loosed in heaven. 
And with that authority, grounding what he's saying, he then moves into the main mission that he gives to the eleven. Beginning of verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. I take this line as the most basic summary of why any church exists. And as such, I want us to understand it well. So I'm going to take some time and kind of talk a little bit and pause to allow you, if you are so inclined, to pull out some Greek software you might have on a phone or a tablet. Pull out some translation comparisons you might have on a phone or a tablet. Be able to follow along and interact in that way if you want, because I want us to know what Jesus told the eleven. Go therefore and teach all nations. While we are on that subject, um, came to my attention yesterday that there is currently a possibility of getting accordance, which is a biblical language of software for free. It also would be a free library. But if you are interested in having something that allows you to look up more things in terms of Greek and Hebrew, you can talk to me later and I can forward you an email to be able to download that onto your computer as well. Go therefore and teach all nations. The word therefore confirms that the statement at the end of verse 18 does ground the commission that is present in this verse. Because he has all authority been given to him in heaven upon earth, go and teach all nations. If you are looking in your Greek software or are versed in the Greek, you will notice that the word go is not the same thing as what is going on with teach or make disciples. So what in grammar would be called a participle, which in English would be words that end in ed or ing which would translate something along the lines of going, make disciples of all nations. Now, the point of that is not to say, then, that we're not commanded to go. But it is to make sure that our focus and emphasis is on the right place. Going is to be modifying the making of disciples. And in fact, as the making of disciples is shown to be of all nations, one cannot fulfill that without going. As all nations are not in Galilee, where the eleven are when they receive this commission. Nor are all nations in Jerusalem, where the eleven are when they first start going out to make disciples. And nor are all nations in Fostoria. So there is a requirement that if we are going to be making disciples of all nations, we have to go. But going for the main directive of teaching all nations. Now, as you continue to use your Greek software, you'd find something about teach. You can see in other translations that it's always used as making disciples. And Strong's indeed suggests that when it is used with an object as it is here, it means to disciple. Now, of course, a disciple is one who learns. So the word teaching covers part of what it means to make a disciple. 
But while being a disciple is not less than learning, it is certainly more. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be committed to learning from him. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be committed to following him. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be daily committed to taking up your cross and dying to yourself, losing yourself for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel. And it is now then the mission of the 11 disciples as they're being sent out and thus becoming apostles to make others as they are, to make others to be committed disciples of Jesus. And as the mission is grounded in universal authority, so the mission is shown with a geographical universality to it as well. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, of course, it can be very tempting to hear nation and think something like the United States of America, China, Russia, Canada, something in terms of a geopolitical entity. But at the time Matthew is writing Jesus's words, there's only one geopolitical entity, Rome. So when he refers to all nations, he's certainly referring to something else. Something in relationship to well-defined as people groups. Certain cultures, certain languages, certain tribes, languages, tongues, as are mentioned in Daniel 7, the revelation as being the ones who come to worship the Son of Man, to worship Jesus in the end. Now, I will stand by the statement made previously that all nations are not in Fostoria. And so it is necessary that we go. But it is also the case that there are, there is, biblically speaking, more than one nation in Australia. You can disagree as much as you want with any sort of politic politics of immigration. But when immigrants do come into this country, the mission field comes into us. So we can engage with the idea of making disciples of all peoples more. The fact that we live in a globalized world means that we don't have to go far to find a different nation. And indeed, we know that well enough. Now, since this will be posted online later, I can't say names in this particular context, but we partner with a missionary who is in Ohio, who is doing disciple-making efforts of another nation. The nations are not far away, but the commission that Jesus gives to us is to go and make disciples of all the nations. And we could continue from here, and there is some value in it. And going through the book of Matthew and looking what it meant for the eleven to be disciples of Jesus. And thus to imitate that as we make disciples of others. But it's much easier and much better for the sake of our time this morning to see how it's already defined and explained in the rest of the passage. As we end up with two more participles that explain what making disciples is all about. 
So we move in from the main mission to the characteristics of discipleship. Verse 19 again reads, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Baptizing, teaching. You have the ing endings, you have the participle forms showing a modification of the idea of making disciples of all nations. At the very least, we have to understand that this characterizes the commission of making disciples. And it starts with baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We rightly understand baptism as something the local church is to do, something we might even call an ordinance as it's been ordained by Jesus for the church to do. And we see it specifically as a symbol, a ritual, and in, in that ritual and rite, we see it as a symbol of initiation into the Christian life. And we are right to do that. If we're looking back to the context of all power giving in to Jesus, if we're specifically thinking about the fact that he has conquered, what he has conquered is the opportunity for people to be subject to him, a much better master, rather than sin, death, and the devil. And baptism symbolizes the initiation into that, because as you stand in the baptismal waters, you symbolize that you are being crucified with him, such that you're buried underneath the waters, no longer to live for sin, no longer to live for yourselves, but to be raised to walk in newness of life, to live for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. United in a death like his, and so united in a resurrection like his. And so it is properly a symbol indicating an initiation into a relationship it doesn't make the relationship happen, but it does symbolize that it does. So if you don't have this relationship, do come to Jesus and believe in him and actually genuinely be united in a death like his by bearing up your cross and following him and trusting in him alone as your hope in life and death. And then be baptized into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And that end line is beautiful. Don't think Jesus intends, nor was it understood in the early church as being a formula that needed to be said at every baptism, but it does explain so much as what baptism is supposed to symbolize in terms of that initiation. It's one name and then three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Probably the clearest reference to the Trinity we have in Scripture, where there's a singular name and three persons, one Godhead, three persons, one being. But ultimately, it's an immersion, a baptism into that name, into the name of the Holy Trinity. 
It's an intentional coming into relationship with or coming under the lordship of moment. What that means is that as we think through discipleship and disciple making, Matthew 18 is insufficient to describe it. So we looked into Matthew 18, we were encouraged about our relationships with one another. But the others-oriented approach of Matthew 18 needs to not just make others-oriented disciples, but an others-oriented community of disciples. The other-orientedness that we were pushed to in Matthew 18 must extend beyond who is sitting across from you in the pews, but into those who are in the community outside. The reality is, if baptisms aren't occurring, given that it's characteristics of disciple-making, the mission is not being fulfilled. Disciples of all nations are not being made. I think what we need to understand about that is that we need to be focused and do a better job of telling our neighbors telling our co-workers, telling those we interact with on a regular basis about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I have heard with some sort of nostalgic and longing anticipation about times in which this church was so full that there were chairs in the aisles. And I will be honest I don't want to see chairs in the aisles again. I think if the church is that full of believers, there's no room for the unbelievers to come in. If there are that many chairs in the aisle and an unbeliever walks in, they may very well walk back out. Maybe go to another church that'd be ideal. Maybe just not go anywhere. I pray we are so focused on others' orientedness and our relationships to the world that when we get to a point that God would bless us with more members, with more people who are committed disciples of Jesus, we'd look to reproduce ourselves. To my knowledge, there's not a healthy church in Fostoria. I'm also fairly certain the situation is worse in surrounding villages and towns like Arcadia, Kansas, New Regal, or Van Buren. So we get blessed where God is giving us the opportunity to make more disciples. My hope is that we continue to look for the opportunity to baptize more into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit by planting more churches so that the unreached in Fostoria still have a place where they can come and there's room. And the unreached in other cities don't have to try to find a different town in order to find a healthy church. And when I pray for what this church does in terms of fulfilling the Great Commission locally, that's one of the things that I primarily pray for and long for. Obviously, it won't stay focused in Ohio or Fostoria and the surrounding villages. We'll continue in how we relationally and prayerfully and sometimes as well financially partner with those who go out. 
Maybe even we'll see some of our members who come in and are discipled being sent out to all around the world to make disciples of all nations. What we see within this passage so far is that we are commissioned to make disciples of all nations. And it begins with the initiation rite of baptism. But there are two characteristics given. And it continues beyond just baptism into a continuation. Beginning of verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. R.T. Francis is right to indicate that baptism is the point of enrollment into a process of learning, which is never complete. The Christian community is a school of learners at various stages of development. There are times in which I emphasize pulling off of this words and languages of verse 20 that the commission to the church is not to make converts, but to make disciples. And it's this type of idea that I'm trying to pull out, that there's a continuation of a maturity. And indeed, the Christian life is a never ending process of learning and increasing in maturity and fighting against our sin that stays with us and must be continually fought and repented of. Now, when I say that, though, technically, there's a little bit of a false dichotomy. There's no such thing as a convert who is not a disciple. If someone is professing to be a convert to Christianity, they are either a disciple of Jesus Christ committed to following him or a false convert who doesn't actually know him at all. But the point being emphasized as it starts in baptism and continues into teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you is that baptism initiates us into the way of Christ into the way of self-sacrifice, and into the way of continual learning from Christ such that we actually learn him. And know him and the power of his resurrection. The eleven are called to teach as part of a characteristic of disciple-making. But it is worth noting that just as the authority they are going on is Jesus's, not theirs, so too is the teaching. They are to teach to them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. It is Jesus' teachings, and specifically Jesus' commandments, that they are to teach. Now when I say teaching and learning, it can be easy to get into a certain, certain bent, especially a certain bent in life that it's an academically minded person mentioning it. While I am minded towards academics and enjoy learning, and there are many of you out there who enjoy learning as well, the primary point that is being mentioned here is not just something about learning something new and fun and exciting. The teaching and the learning is designed to be transformational. The 11 are specifically here told to teach them to observe or keep. All things whatsoever I have commanded you. To pull off from our scripture reading in Ephesians 4 again, God gave the gifts of teachers in Ephesians 4 
for the purpose of transformation into unity and maturity. So there'd be a, a measure of the fullness of Christ being met and reached by all those around. The goal of teaching and the goal of learning is ultimately to be a community of disciples pursuing Christ together and always growing to become more like him. To grow in Christ's likeness, not just in knowledge of scripture. And I would say that a knowledge that does not have this intentionality, that does not desire to be transformed in this way, is worse than harmless. I think it actually is harmful. I think that's the type of knowledge that would puff up and lead to destruction. It's the type of knowledge that we seek when we have this characteristic of disciple-making, of teaching, is a knowledge that allows us to speak the truth in love, allows us to grow into the head that is Christ and reach the full stature of the measure of Christ. And this is where our section of study in Matthew 18 becomes so clear and crucial, because it's the type of teaching that is encouraged not just from behind this pulpit, but out there in the pews with one another. It happens when the church is gathered in this building and also when the church is scattered, but there are still members of you together in the homes talking to one another, being able to pour into each other and communicate, communicate the truth of the gospel in difficult situations, including in Matthew 18, difficult situations of a need to rebuke, need to work through some things in order to forgive. Matthew 18 showed us to take upon the role of a humble servant, take on the role of a little child in order to serve one another and even outdo one another in serving one another, but not just about tangible needs, but about spiritual ones as well. It pushes us to be more than a social club and more than a place of academic learning, but a place that is a family designed to help one another find Christ and pursue righteousness and pursue the holiness without which you will not see God. A continuation of the discipleship of bearing up one's cross and observing all things that Jesus commands to do. Perhaps that looks like, before leaving this room, finding someone you might be knowing and struggling with anxiety and remind them of the goodness of Christ, that there is hope and comfort in waiting in the Lord. Perhaps that looks like over lunch talking about what you're learning in your daily Bible reading. Or when you're interacting with a church member throughout this week, or even if you make a special phone call to do so, to talk about the sermon. But live in light of properly understanding and making disciples that continue to mature and grow in Christ. We can't make any illusions or deceptions as if this is easy. Making disciples of all nations is certainly a difficult task for the 11, and certainly a difficult task for us as well. Telling people about the gospel who don't already know it can be quite, quite intimidating because it, the gospel is offensive to our natural sensibilities. Talking to people within the church who aren't used to having intentional conversations about Christ and spiritual discipleship can be intimidating. 
in light of that intimidation, we have this promise that accompanies the mission. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Jesus is commissioning his 11 disciples. There were some who were doubting and hesitant in verse 17, just as we might remember that Moses was hesitant, or Gideon was hesitant. And yet, just as Yahweh commissioned Moses and Gideon and Jeremiah with their hesitations by assuring them that he would be with them, so too does Jesus handle the hesitations of the disciples, assuring them, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Yes, it is true that obeying the Great Commission is not easy. Yes, it is true that being an others-oriented community of others-oriented disciple-makers is not easy. But we can be assured that Jesus is with us guide us and defend us, protect us, and that we have the conquered, conquering one with us all the days until the consummation of the age. Just as Matthew began his gospel by reminding us in Matthew 1.23 of the promise of Isaiah 7.14 that a child would be born, Emmanuel, God with us. So he ends by saying that child who's no longer a child, is still with us. With us to the end of the age. It relates back in some ways to the fact that there's a promise in Matthew 18, 20, that in regards to the exercise of the keys of the kingdom, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be with them. Just as the authority on heaven and earth calls back to those passages in Matthew 16 and 18, so this calls back to that accompanying presence. But even more than anything else, the last few words show us that the mission given here is not just a mission to the disciples. Because Jesus' promise of reassurance outlasts them. I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. His promise is to be with them all the days until the consummation of the age, which is true as they are no longer with us, but are with him. So he is then with But right now, as they are long dead, they are not doing anything to go and make disciples of all nations. That's where we come in. The promise that reassures them is to go until the consummation of the age, where elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, the righteous and the wicked are separated, as in the parable of the weeds and the tares. So too, the teaching, the making disciples, the baptizing, the teaching them to observe all things, continues through the ministry of the church, the ministry of the discipling communities that Jesus built and planted through his apostles. We think a lot about endings in our culture. But it's appropriate to think of this ending as similar to what is a graduation ceremony. Or what has even been called a commencement. 
So Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus speaking again, but he doesn't keep on speaking for an entire chapter. And there's no epilogue at the end of it to sum it up and say, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went up and ascended into heaven. Instead, it ends with his speaking, telling the disciples and telling the church to continue the speaking. Matthew's gospel is the beginning of a mission that we are still carrying on. So let us go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Jesus has commanded us. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that when we are thinking about the church, we do not have to draw up our own understandings of what we are to do. That you have spelled it out right here. And I thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to study these words together. And I ask, Lord, that you would continue to help us to think meaningfully about what you do and what you have given for us to do. And so, Lord, let us be not a social club, but a community oriented towards others' discipleship, helping each of us be disciples of you and making disciples of those around us. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?